So I want to start by taking a little poll, and don't worry, it has nothing to do with politics. Um, I just want to like to know how many of you really like to go camping. You like wait 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 hold on. You, you like the whole tent trailer, you know, uh, campfire s'mores, living in the dirt. Um, how many of you really like to camp? Now you're. I just ruined it. Living in the dirt. Well, come on. You got to be honest. Okay, that's that's impressive. Um, I like to camp. I really do. I just don't like it as much as I did when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I could never get a, enough of camping. Uh, my folks took my sister and me camping a lot. I think we probably went at least two, three times a year. And, man, it was fun. I couldn't get enough. And, and then I became a grown-up, and I found out there's a really big difference between camping as a child and camping as a grown-up. And the difference is basically a whole lot of work. Um, because, you know, well, so we took our, our family uh, down to Yosemite National Park. This is many years ago. Kids were small. But you know, to go, you've got to get all your stuff ready. You've got to get all the food. You've got to figure out how you're going to store all that in the ice chest and everything. And, and then it's a bit of a drive down to Yosemite from here. And then you go, and then you unpack, and you set up, and then you, you, know, you enjoy living in the dirt for a few days, and, and then you pack back up, and then you drive, and, you know, kids at a long drive and all that, and then you get home, and then you've got to unpack, and then you've got to clean up. And I just, it's a lot of work. Now, we had, we were pretty well equipped as far as camping standards go. According to camping standards, we were fairly comfortable. But let's face it. Even fairly comfortable camping is not as comfortable as staying home. It just isn't. But there's a problem with staying home and being comfortable. You really miss out on some great stuff. You really do. Yeah, it doesn't really matter how many pictures you've ever seen of Yosemite Valley. You got the picture there, Rich? Just want y'all to take a look at this picture. Okay. Yeah. You look at that and you go, oh, that's not. Well, okay. That still doesn't begin to compare to actually being there and seeing it with your own eyes. It, it's amazing. And, and hiking to the top of Vernal Falls with children <laughs> is a challenge. It is a challenge. But the view spectacular just spectacular and camping in upper pines campground is not as comfortable as sleeping in your own bed at home but you get to see bears not yogi real bears it is amazing and it's just true that in life that if 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 being comfortable is like one of your top priorities. You're just going to miss out. You're going to miss out on stuff. And, and that definitely holds true when it comes to having a relationship with God. A commitment to being comfortable and a commitment to following Jesus just don't fit together very well. Now, we've been talking uh, for several weeks about this 
idea of being fruitful and multiplying, which expresses God's will for us as, as his people, as, as a church, that he wants us to, to be fruitful spiritually and to um, help more and more people become disciples of Jesus. And as we do this, if, if we're going to do this, if we're going to be serious about this, it's going to require us to go outside of those comfortable bubbles, those cultural bubbles of comfort that, that we like, that we feel nice and safe and secure in, to go outside of those in order to really to do this. And the thing I want to talk about this morning, I want to address one of those bubbles that can be pretty comfortable for a lot of people, and that has to do with the size of your church. That for many people, that is a nice, comfortable thing, and the thought for some of their church getting significantly bigger is kind of an uncomfortable thought. And I want us to think about that this morning because I've challenged you, and we need to keep challenging one another, to be praying for people we know that maybe we work with or live next door to or go to school with or whatever, people we know who don't know Jesus. And I've challenged you to be praying for them and to help me to remember to pray for the people I'm praying for and praying that God will give us opportunities and that we will take those opportunities and that we will uh, live out the good news before them and share the good news with them. Well, I just want to ask you a question. What happens if God says yes to all those prayers? What happens if, by the grace of God, we share the gospel with people and they respond positively? And then they, they need a church to belong to, they, and, and they want to become part of our church. What if a whole bunch of people put their faith in Christ and showed up and want to be a part of our church? What if we had to make some changes to our schedule, to our facility? What if you showed up and there were already people sitting in your seat? And there just wasn't room for you on that side, so you'd have to sit on the other side. If just, and you know, you, whatever your church is, if this is your church, or if you're, you're a guest for, and you're from somewhere else, and, and you, whatever your church is, I just want you to think about it. If your church grows numerically, significantly, what's that going to do to your comfort level? I want to give you some reasons this morning why you should want that, why you should welcome that, why you should want numerical growth for your church, why you should want your church to get bigger, even if that makes you kind of uncomfortable. Okay? First reason. You should want it because we can't make disciples without it. And that's why the church is here. We are here to make disciples. That is our purpose. That's why Jesus has us here, for us to make disciples. Now, um, what's a disciple? Disciples are people who respond to the good news, the gospel of Jesus, put their trust in him, 
and become his followers. So that's what we're talking about. And uh, Jesus made this very clear in what we call the Great Commission, the end of the Gospel of Matthew. He tells his followers this, uh, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. He says, Go therefore and make disciples in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So there's his, present, there's his promise to be present with his church to the very end of the age as they are going about doing what he's told them to do to make disciples. And the way we talk about it around here, Philida, we talk about connecting people, helping people connect with the God who made them, with friends who help them, and to a world that needs them. That's how we state our purpose, and you can see it's right on the back of your worship folder there. That's why we're here. And the point is, if we go after this, if we actually live out our purpose and fulfill our purpose, we should expect the church to grow as more and more people put their faith in Christ and become disciples. Now, we have an example of this in the early church, and I want to show you what happened on the very first day that the very first church was, so to speak, open for business. Okay, is there, is there doing the job Jesus gave them to do? So in the book of Acts, right after Jesus is resurrected from the dead and right before he returns to his Father in heaven, uh, it says that he has a conversation with his followers and he's telling them to wait there in Jerusalem until uh, God gives them the gift of his spirit and he reminds them, right before he returns to heaven, he reminds them of this great commission. Acts 1.8, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. You're going to tell people about me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Okay, so here's this group of Christians, and they're hanging out in Jerusalem, and they're waiting to go to, go to work to tell people to be witnesses uh, of Jesus now, question, how big was that group? How big was the church at this point? Well, it tells us in Acts 1.15. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. Well, that sounds like a nice size. That sounds pretty comfortable, pretty manageable, 120 people. All right. Well, then we come to Acts chapter 2, opening day. And God fulfills his promise and pours out his spirit on his people, and they begin to go to work. They begin to do the thing he's told them to do. And a, and a crowd gathers, and Peter stands up, and he proclaims the good news about Jesus. And, and look what happens when he finishes. Chapter 2, verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000. They started the day with 120. At the end of the day, they had over 3,000. <laughs> what do you think that was like? Can you imagine that? How do you think about those original 120 people? 
You think they were excited? You think they were amazed? Do you think they were freaked out? I've jokingly asked before, how do you think the nursery coordinator felt? (laughs) But here's the point. Any discomfort they might have felt with this explosive growth didn't matter. It just didn't matter. It came with the job. It was part of making disciples. It goes with it. Now, I've, I've, I mentioned this earlier in the series that you know, sometimes you'll hear people say that numbers, numbers don't matter. Numbers don't matter. It's not numerical growth that matters. It's spiritual growth that matters. It's, it's quality not quantity. Well, it's, it's certainly true that numbers don't tell the whole story. They definitely don't, because you could, you could attract a crowd in all kinds of ways that have nothing to do with the gospel, have nothing to do with making disciples, okay? But that doesn't mean that numbers don't matter. You think about it. If the church doesn't grow numerically, in other words, if more and more people don't become believers in Jesus, you know what happens? The church dies in one generation. Somebody in the early church counted the numbers. And God saw fit to have those numbers written down. So numbers matter. Why? Because every one of those numbers represented a person. A person who encountered Jesus and was changed. A person who went from death to life. A person who went from being outside of God's family to becoming part of God's family. Someone who went from being an enemy of God to becoming a child of God. How could we possibly say that numerical growth doesn't matter? Of course it matters. It absolutely matters. You know, sometimes in the Bible, making disciples is um, described as being like farming. Okay, I don't know how many farmers we have out there, but just imagine this. Imagine you met somebody who had a a big wheat farm, maybe 10,000 acres, And you were talking to this person, and he said, uh, hey, would you like to see my crop from last year? He said, sure. And he reaches into his pocket, and he pulls out a handful of wheat. And you look at that handful of wheat, and you look at 10,000 acres. And he says, well, you got to understand, on this farm, we emphasize quality. (laughs) And this handful of wheat, man, this is high-quality wheat. And you'd think, okay. Well, yes, quality matters, but one handful of wheat out of 10,000 acres seems like something's wrong here. Seems like maybe there's some opportunities being missed. Okay? The fact is, churches that intentionally, that intentionally pursue and obey the Great Commission that Jesus has given us usually grow. Because it's part of making disciples, helping more people come to know him. Okay, so that's one reason we should want it, because it's part of what we're here for. Uh, Second reason, to want numerical growth, to actually want it to happen, 
is because numerical growth is God's decision, not ours. It's God's decision, not ours. It's what God wants, so we should want what God wants. So, getting back to the church in Jerusalem there, (laughs) they go from 120 to over 3,000 in one day. And you might think, hey, that's probably enough. You know, 3,000, that's a big church. That's a mega church, 3,000. And you might think, okay, they're good. Well, then you get to Acts 2.47, and it says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So the church just kept on growing every day. Now, why? Well, they were doing the right things. I mean, you can read about that in the verses leading up to this. They were being faithful. They were doing the things Jesus had told them to do. But what actually caused the growth? The Lord added to their number. The Lord did it. Our job is to do what Jesus has told us to do. And he then can choose to use that to bring about growth. And what I want you to notice is the Lord never asked the Jerusalem church if they were okay with that do you see that or you don't see it right because it's not there you you don't see jesus coming to the church and saying hey listen guys i was kind of thinking of adding three thousand new people to your church here in one day you guys okay with that he doesn't ask them God doesn't ask for our permission to do His will because it's His thing. And so He's not asking us what our preferences are. We need to be careful not to insist on our preferences. You know, sometimes we kind of can act like we ought to be able to have the church be the way we want it to be. Why? Why? It's not ours. It's his. And so, you know, what our preferences are really, in the long run, are kind of irrelevant. And maybe maybe you have a preference for a smaller church. I've heard that a lot over the years. I've heard that a lot. Uh, Sometimes people will come from a much, much bigger church, and they will say to me something like, you know, I just want to be part of a church where everybody knows everybody. And I'm partly sympathetic to that because what that tells me is they're realizing it's important to know and to be known by others, and that's significant, that's important because we do need to know other people and we need to be known by people. But what I want to say is the way to meet that need is not by keeping the church as small as we can. In the first place, let me give you some, some support to that. In the first place, if a church is more than 70 people, you already don't know everybody. You can't. And you might think you can, and if you think you know everybody, just come and talk to me afterwards, and I could probably find somebody you don't know. They might look familiar to you, especially if they sit on your side of the building. (laughs) But, But you don't really know them you don't know them the way they need to be known. 
Okay, we just can't keep track of that many people. Um, so, you know, if, if your church is more than 50, 70 people, you already don't know everybody. Second thing to remember is that it's true we need relationships, but we don't need a relationship with everybody. Okay, uh, think of it this way. Everybody needs to know somebody. In fact, several somebodies. Everybody needs to know somebody, but nobody needs to know everybody. Okay, and usually when people are saying, well, I really like a smaller church, what they're saying is, I want to belong to a church where I have friends. Yes, absolutely, yes. That's so important. That's why we say that one of our purposes as a church is to connect people to friends who help them. We need that. We need that to grow. We need that to become the people Jesus wants us to be. So it's really not so much about the size of the church. It's really about whether or not you can connect with some friends. And then third, a commitment to staying small usually is a selfish commitment. Because what we're saying is, Basically, what I like is more important than the church doing its job. What I like is, matters more than the church doing its job. I mean, ask yourself this, okay? What if the first time you came to your church, people looked at you and said, well, it's really nice that you thought of stopping by, but we're full. <laughs> we have all the people we need so you're going to have to go somewhere else. Now, I'm pretty sure nobody, I hope nobody, would ever actually say that. But we can communicate that in other ways. We can just stop noticing new people. Or we can really kind of stop caring whether people get connected or not. It's okay to have preferences. Everybody's got them. You've got preferences. I've got preferences. Everybody has preferences. We just can't let our preferences be more important to us than what God wants. How big, how big should a church be? My answer, as big as God wants it to be because it's his. I ought to want, I ought to pursue exactly what Jesus told me to do. I ought to want and pursue other people coming to know Jesus Christ, becoming his disciples, and then I ought to let God add as many people as he wants to because it's his. Okay? It's his decision, not ours. And then the third reason, <laughs> numerical growth provokes spiritual growth. Now look at that word provoke. If you want to know what that means, turn to the person next to you, take your finger and gently but firmly go like that. Okay? You've just been provoked. Okay? <laughs> Why does God want to provoke us? Well, um, because one reason is the longer we're Christians, the fact is the easier it is to get kind of complacent, to get kind of comfortable, 
to get kind of self-reliant. God does not want us to be self-reliant. And so very often, when we get like that, he will allow situations to come into our lives that provoke us into seeking him with a fresh urgency. So let's go back to the Jerusalem church. Over 3,000 added on one day, more and more every day after that. By the time you get to Acts 4.4, it says, but many of those who heard the word of believe, the number of men came to be about 5,000. So do the math. If, if we add in everybody else, you know, this is getting to be a really big church, and they're still growing. Now, question, do you think that caused any problems? Well, we know it did. Look at Acts 6.1. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So apparently the church had some kind of a Meals on Wheels program to take care of the needy widows, which in a church of, you know, uh, 5,000 men is probably a pretty good size. I mean, that's probably a pretty good size list, number of widows. But there was a problem. There was a problem. Because numerical growth always causes problems. Numerical growth always causes problems. Let's say that together. (laughs) Numerical growth always causes problems. And the problem here was that some of these widows were getting overlooked. Now, not intentionally. Nobody had a plan to starve these gals. But the people who ran the program spoke Hebrew and had Hebrew culture, and some of the widows spoke Greek and were more Greek in their culture, and there was some kind of communication problem, and that's exactly what you can expect as a church grows. Problems of communication, problems of understanding, problems of cultural differences. You know how to avoid those problems? Shut the doors. Put a sign on says, sorry, we're full. But that's not the right answer, is it? No. Not if you're serious about making disciples. That's not what the Jerusalem church did. Instead, they saw their problem as an opportunity to trust God, to rely on God. And that's exactly what needs to happen. It's an opportunity to rely on God. The leaders of the church figured that, well, if there's a genuine need here, well, then God's going to provide the resources to meet the need. And so they said to the people, okay, choose some qualified People to take care of this. People who are filled with God's spirit. People who are full of wisdom. And we'll put them in charge. Meanwhile, we're going to continue to devote ourselves to prayer and to the proclaiming of God's word. And there's really a lot we could say from that. But the thing I want you to see is, do you sense their reliance on God here? They're going to rely on God. They knew the need was important. They knew it mattered but they trusted God to meet it, and God did. And he provided seven men to run Meals on Wheels for Greek-speaking widows. And look at the result in verse 7. So the word of God spread 
the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. More disciples, more growth. Problems, problems have a way of provoking us to rely on God more. Problems provoke us to be more dependent on God, and did you know that's exactly what God wants? I keep getting confused and thinking that what God wants for me is a problem-free life. Oh, that's right. That's what I want for me. What God wants for me is greater dependence on Him. Problems are not an obstacle to what God wants to accomplish. Oh, man, we've got to be careful thinking that. Oh, no, it's a problem. What God wants to accomplish is now in danger. No. Problems are not an obstacle to what God wants to accomplish. You know what they are? They are a means for what God wants to accomplish. Because what He wants to accomplish is greater dependence on Him. Hey, guess what? Problems really work to do that. I think the question we really have to ask ourselves is this. Is numerical growth really an option if we want to be obedient to the Lord and that's what he wants, is it really optional? Okay, I want you to think about this. I want you to imagine that an ocean liner has just sunk. There's the Titanic. And you are in one of the lifeboats. And the water around you, the icy water around you, is full of people who are going to die if they don't get help. What do you do? Well, what you don't do is worry about your comfort level. What you don't do is worry about people getting in your space and sitting in your seat. You're only concerned with getting as many people out of the water as you possibly can. Get them on board before they perish. You can be comfortable when you get back to shore. Now, what if people who were already on the boat started complaining about the new people and said, well, I don't know. Do we really want more people on board? I mean, that's going to cause problems. Hey, I already feel like I don't know everybody. (laughs) If you heard somebody say anything like that, you would know one thing for sure. They don't get it. They don't understand what's at stake here. They don't know or get what a lifeboat is for. The church is God's lifeboat. One of the main reasons he put us here is to rescue people who are drowning in life without God. Who who don't even know it. And they are on their way to eternal sorrow. Pastor Greg Laurie of Harvest Christian Fellowship says this, the good news is only good news if it gets to you in time. 
So don't worry about the discomforts, the problems created by bringing people in. I mean, we have all eternity to be comfortable. I just tell myself that all the time. Look, Scott, you've got all eternity to have a big, nice house. You've got all eternity to do all the fun things you want to do. You've got all eternity to be comfortable. Right now, let's do the work that Jesus has called us to do. To man the lifeboat. To be about the business. To to do all we can do to help dying people, perishing people, find the rescue they need in Christ. Let's pray together. Just think about this. Are you willing to put up with some discomfort in order to experience the joy of following Jesus and the excitement of being used by him to make a difference? Lord, we we just come and we want to pause and we want to acknowledge that you are a gracious and awesome Savior. And those of us who today have responded to your invitation, your gracious invitation to have life. Lord, we have an incredible privilege and a huge responsibility to share the good news with others, to help them experience your rescue. Lord, we have lots of problems and we are not always faithful. And I just pray you would help us Help us keep our focus on you and the purpose you've put us here. Lord, it's so easy in this world to get distracted with so many other things. And many of those things are good things. But they're not meant to keep us from what you've called us to do. So help us, Father. And and I just pray if there's anybody here who has yet to say yes to you, and still needs to respond to Jesus and his work of salvation. Lord, I pray that that might be soon for them. And will you help us in this community to be the lifeboat that you've called us to be? Help us remember why we're here. We pray in Jesus' name.